Um, right, said, could I give a quick overview of where, what we've covered in Philippians so far? Because we've um, been working our way through Philippians and we had a pause over the Easter weekend. Um, we've basically we'll cover Philippians in six sermons. I think, though, it's helpful for all of us to get to the point where there's only 66 books in the Bible. And I think it's helpful for us to get to the point where we can, in one sentence or less, say what each book of the Bible is about. It's good for us to kind of have that sort of understanding of the Bible, and it's good to be able to explain it to others as well. And so, if you want a one-word summary for Philippians, I reckon partnership would be the word. So, partnership would be a one-word summary. You might come up with something else, like citizenship, perhaps. I reckon partnership. A three-word summary might be partnership or fellowship in the Gospel. Um, I think that's one of the big things that runs through this book. So, Philippians, it's an encouraging letter. This is the one-sentence summary. An encouraging letter written by the Apostle Paul to the Christians in Philippi who, cons- who he considers to be partners in the gospel with him. He wants them to stand firm in the gospel as citizens of heaven. And so, chapter 1, verse 3, he says, I thank my God every time I remember you in all my prayers for all of you. I always pray with joy because of your partnership or your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will continue it to completion until the day of Christ. And then I reckon if you want to pick um, one verse as the summary verse of the whole letter, so he's writing to his partners in the gospel, he wants them to stand firm. I reckon the key verse would be 1 verse 27, where he says, Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner um, worthy of the gospel of Christ. Or if you were to translate more literally, or more plainly, live as worthy citizens of the gospel of Christ. What does it mean to live as worthy citizens? Well, that's what he goes on to uh, cover in the rest of the, the verses. So if you step through fairly quickly, chapter 1, verses 27 to 30, he wants them to stand united and to contend, to fight, to stick up for the gospel. 2, verses 1 to 5, he wants them to live in a way that shows they appreciate all that they have as Christians. Um, he says that he wants, he'll be able to see that in the way that they treat each other, the way they behave towards each other, putting others before themselves, being like-minded. In 2 verses 6 to 11, he wants them to have the same mind as Christ. And then in 2 verse 12, he wants them to work out or outwork their salvation, to see it in the way that they live. If the Philippians live as um, worthy citizens, in 2 verse 15, they'll shine like stars in the world. And then in chapter 3, he warns them against anyone who might try to deceive them into finding their confidence in this earth or in their achievements on this earth. And in 3 verse 20, he says, Christians were citizens of heaven. And through chapter 3, he says he gives up everything, everything, he, all his achievements, all his status, he considers rubbish, apart from knowing Jesus. So I reckon one sentence, it's an encouraging letter written to partners in the gospel, urging them to live lives worthy of the gospel. And I'll stop there. Hi, my name is Elise and I'll be reading Philippians 4. Therefore, my, sis- my brothers and sisters, who rumour I love and long for, my joy and crown stand firm in the Lord in this way. Dear friends, I plead with Euodia and I plead with Sin? 
her to know, to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel. Along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, with God, your, will guard your heart and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, indeed you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. Whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want, I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of living and receiving, except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. Not that I desire your gifts, what I desire is that more be created to your account. I have received full payment and have more than enough. I am amply supplied now that I have received from the gifts you sent. They are a fragrant, fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet all God's people in Christ Jesus. The brothers and sisters who are with me send greetings. All God's people here send you greetings especially those who belong to Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Well, good morning, everyone, from my side as well. Um, as David was saying earlier, we will hear from God's word today. So let's ask him for help. Um, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we praise you for who you are, our Heavenly Father. Good, righteous, perfect, loving. There's so much to rejoice about, Father. And we rejoice today in particular that we can stand here and that we can listen to your word. So Father, help us to listen carefully, give us patience and minds that are not distracted and hearts which are open to receive your word and be changed by you, by your spirit. 
We pray all this to the glory of your name. Amen. Did you know that exactly 500 years ago, almost to this very day today, something remarkable happened? It's the 18th of April, 1521. And we're in Germany at the Diet of Worms. It's an assembly of all important political and religious figures. The room is full with people of authority. Over there sits the king, the emperor, Charles V, and he's surrounded by clergymen from Rome. They are the representatives of the Pope. And they're all staring at one man who stands over there. And this man is Martin Luther. One day before, they ask him to recant. They ask him to renounce his writings and beliefs. His 95 theses, theses are written against the Pope, which include the gospel truth that we are not saved by any works, but that we are saved by grace and through faith alone. Now Luther takes one day to consider. He goes into long prayer, and Luther knows that if he doesn't renounce his writings, this could cost him his life. So one day after that, he comes back. The room is full. It's that scene. Everyone is staring at Luther, waiting for his response. And it is as if time stands still for a moment. And then Luther says these famous words. He says, I'm bound by scripture that I have quoted. And my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot. And I will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither safe nor right. Here I stand. I can do no other. May God help me. Amen. The rest is history. But you see, Luther stood firm for the gospel. And after prayer, he had that peace of God that filled his heart and his mind. He stood firm for the gospel. He stood firm in the Lord. And to stand firm in the Lord is exactly what Paul wants the Philippians to do. To stand firm in the Lord, striving side by side for the gospel. That's the overarching purpose of the letter to the Philippians. And we have seen that already in chapter 1, verse 27, which uh, Steve told us before. But let me read it to you again. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And you know, this is very similar to verse 1 of chapter 4, which we are looking at today. In verse 4, uh, in, 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 chapter, in, in verse 1, chapter 4, Paul basically summarizes everything that he said before. And he concludes by saying, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. He starts with therefore, because he's in the immediate context, he's pointing us back to chapter 3, reminding the Philippians and us that our citizenship is in heaven. And that one day Jesus, our Lord and Savior, will come back. That Jesus will raise us from the dead, transform our lowly bodies, and that we will share in his glory forever. But till then, Paul wants the Philippians to do what? 
He wants them to stand firm in the Lord. But how do you do that? How do you stand firm in the Lord like Luther when you face opposition? When your whole life might be at stake? Or how can you stand firm in the Lord in every situation today? That's what Paul is talking about in chapter 4. Verses 2 to 9 are a list of instructions on how to stand firm in the Lord. And after that, from verse 10 onwards, Paul uses himself as an example and shows the Philippian how he stands firm in the Lord. So today we will take a closer look at these instructions that Paul gives us in the first part. And after that, we'll have a brief look at Paul as an example of standing firm in the Lord. Before we start with these instructions, let's do a really quick recap. You know how we said these Philippians, they are an exemplary church, like a model church? I mean, have a look at verse 1 again. Paul calls them his joy, his crown, whom he loves and longs for. Why? Because they stand out among all the other churches in terms of giving and supporting him. They are in gospel partnership with Paul. And you can see that if you, if you glean forward, to verse 14, Paul says, Yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me eight more than once when I was in need. So you see, Paul really has reason to rejoice about this. And so it's no surprise that the whole letter of the Philippians is filled with the word joy and rejoice. In fact, he uses this 11 times in this short letter. So the Philippians are a model church and they stand out. However, they are not perfect. Even in their church, there seems to be conflict. A conflict between two women. And this is where our instructions start. From verse 2 to 9, Paul gives us four major points on how to stand firm in the Lord. And the first point is this. If you want to stand firm in the Lord, you need to resolve conflict, help one another, and work in the gospel partnership together. Have a look at verse 2. He says, I plead with Oyodia and I plead with Syntyche, it's a really hard name, right? <laughs> to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women, since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel. A better translation here is, they have labored or strived side by side with me for the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers, whose names are in the book of life. So, there seems to be conflict in Philippi, but you see, as a church in Christ, we're supposed to be of one mind with and, and one body and we have one head which is Christ and so Paul is pleading with these women to resolve their conflict in the church family he even urges a third person to help them now we don't know who that companion is it might be Epaphroditus but the Greek word true companion can also be a name so whoever that person might be Paul asked this person to help these women because they were laboring side by side with Paul for the gospel. So how do we stand firm in the Lord? We need to resolve conflict with our brothers and sisters. A body can't stand firm 
if its body parts are all doing their own thing. There needs to be one mind controlling everything. So we need to be of the same mind in the Lord. And if there is conflict, the first thing to do is actually to acknowledge that there is a problem. It's so easy to turn a blind eye and just to ignore that there is conflict at all. And the second thing is this, um, if we can't resolve it on our own, we need to get someone to help us. We need to get another Christian as a mediator. And we need to be willing to accept help, which is not always easy. But this also shows us something else. As Christians, we can't be isolated. As Christians, we strive side by side for the gospel. And you know, a hand can't exist on its own. And all these people that Paul mentions in his letters, they are hands and feet of the body of Christ. They are fellow gospel workers, but they aren't isolated. And it's interesting, striving side by side is actually one word in Greek. It's the word where we get our word athlete from. But as Christians, we're not athletes on our own. No, we run the race together. We're in gospel partnership. And like an athlete, we need endurance for that. The Bible tells us as Christians, we will have to endure suffering. But we do that together. We help one another. We share the burden. And we resolve conflict. Because we all serve the same purpose. We all serve our Lord and Savior with one mind. And we want to see His gospel to go out into all the nations. The second major point on the instruction list is this. To stand firm in the Lord, you need to rejoice in the Lord. Have a look at verse 4. Paul says, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. You see, that's an imperative. It's a command. It's not optional. We ought to rejoice. So it's our duty and our privilege to rejoice. Paul isn't talking about rejoicing and fleeting or worldly things. This isn't just some positive thinking or one of these pep talks that you can find on the internet everywhere these days to feel better afterwards. No, Paul is talking about holy joy. He says we ought to rejoice in the Lord. You see, this is Christ-centered joy. Matthew Henry puts it like this. All our joy must terminate in God, and our thoughts of God must be delightful thoughts. But there's one more word here. We ought to rejoice in the Lord always. Because if God is the object of our joy, then there's always something we can rejoice in. Think about it. Our God is most holy, righteous, pure, loving. He's perfect. In fact, there's so much to rejoice about in the Lord that we will continue to rejoice in heaven forever. For all eternity. Can you imagine that? But how quick are we sometimes to point our finger at God and to start to think worse of Him because we are suffering or we have difficulties or because things don't go as we planned them. And yet Paul tells us to rejoice in the Lord always. You know, he is in chains, in prison when he writes these lines, possibly waiting for his execution. So Paul shows us 
that we have enough to rejoice in God, even in our worst circumstances. So when we truly see God for who He is, His majesty, and what He has done for us, then we have more than enough reason to rejoice. And this then helps us to stand firm in the Lord. And by the way, our rejoicing, even in hard times, it's also something that becomes visible to non-Christians. That's why Paul says in the next verse, let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. What he means is this, when things get hard, we should stay calm and gentle. Why? Because God is with us. As Paul said in chapter 2, God is working in us. So in this sense, the Lord is already with us because He's in us. He gave us His Spirit. But we have also seen in chapter 3 that one day Jesus will return and He will judge the living and the dead. So in that sense, the Lord is also near because He is coming back. And that could be tomorrow. It could be this afternoon. Have you thought about that? That's something to rejoice about because as Christians we know that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory that will be revealed to us when Jesus returns. So how do we stand firm in the Lord? By rejoicing in Him always, knowing that He is at work in us and by looking forward to Jesus' return. But maybe you're sitting here and you say, but what if I can't rejoice, I'm unable to rejoice? Because you are hit with anxiety or other worries. Consider this, did you know that more than 26% of all Australians will experience anxiety in their lifetime? This means every fourth person in this room will have to deal with it one day or the other. And by the way, that's before COVID, that statistic. So what if your whole being, your heart and mind becomes gripped by this shaky feeling of insecurity? And suddenly you start to doubt about almost everything. And you start to have that inward focus, being afraid of the slightest change that could happen to your life. You know, I was there last year. And let me tell you, it wasn't a pleasant situation to be in. Especially when I started to feel that physical effect of anxiety. I did the opposite of rejoicing in the Lord. I became inward focused and to an extent selfish as well. And I was holding on to these thoughts, to these distracting thoughts. And you know, the problem with anxiety is that slowly over time, you are ruled by these thoughts rather than by God. So how do we stand firm in the Lord if we have anxiety or other worries? This leads us to our third point on the instructions from Paul. In the next couple of verses, Paul gives us an antidote to anxiety and other worries. Have a look at verse 6. Paul says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. Paul says the antidote to anxiety is a life filled with prayer. And there are two key things here. Every situation and thanksgiving. Notice how he doesn't say sometimes. No, he says in every situation we should be prayerful. 
That means our whole life becomes a warp of prayer. It's a life where we constantly have that attitude, God, may your will be done, not mine. And this then leads to self-denial and a redirection of our whole being, including our thoughts. We turn away from that inward focus and take our burden, our anxieties or worries, whatever they might be, and we bring them before God. You see, with prayer, our focus shifts from an inward focus, self-centered focus, towards a Christ-centered focus. But Paul also says, our prayer should be filled with thankfulness, thanksgiving, gratefulness. In other words, we should praise God in all our prayers. And there's so much to praise Him for. He sent His only Son to live the life that we couldn't live. Let me remind you of chapter 2 and the hymn that we find in there. Jesus made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in the heavens and on the earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. That's a hymn. It's a hymn our Christian hearts should sing all day long, praising God, being thankful for that. Is your heart singing this hymn? Is your heart filled with thankfulness? And do you call upon the name of Jesus, the name that is above every name? Do you long for the time of the day to sit in prayer with your Heavenly Father? Because you see, it helps us to stand firm in the Lord. I mean, how do you want to be close to God, stand firm in Him, if you don't talk to Him? It's the same with a friend. You can't say to, a, to the guy who lives on the other side of the street, this is my friend. You can't say that if you don't talk to him. Friends talk. They have a relationship. They know each other. But you know what? As a Christian, you have more than just a friend. You have a Father in Heaven who cares about and for you. And you have a brother in Jesus who died for your sins. So if you feel anxious about anything, talk to Him. Talk to your Heavenly Father and bring your burden to the cross. Don't let these thoughts linger in your head for a long time. Bring them to Jesus and do it with a gratitude in your heart. Looking back at the cross and looking forward to Jesus' return. Because you know what flows out of that? What flows out of a prayerful life with gratitude? Have a look at verse 7. It's the peace of God which transcends all understanding and it will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. You see, prayer with thanksgiving, praising God, glorifying Him, it's like a compass. The needle is always redirected towards the magnetic pole and once it reaches its position, it stands still. There's no movement. There's peace. And it's the same with our hearts and minds. In prayer, they are redirected towards God. 
Prayer filled with praise keeps us on track. It fills us with the peace of God. The peace that comes from God. And this protects us from the temptations of our heart. From our sinful desires. That's why we pray. God lead us not into temptation. But deliver us from evil. And it even redirects our minds and thoughts. Everything is redirected towards Jesus. Because he is the one who died for us on the cross. He is the one who bought us this peace with the Father. Through him we are declared right with God. So as Christians, you now have a relationship with the God of the universe. You can call him Father. This is peace. Knowing that the God of the universe is for us. Ask yourself, who or what then can be against us? And listen to these comforting words from Romans 8. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor heights nor depths, nor anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Is that what you believe? Is that a reality for you? Because knowing this, means having the peace of God that surpasses all understanding. So how do we stand firm in the Lord? We live a life that is filled with prayer and we praise God in it, in every situation. And we bring all our anxieties or worries before our Heavenly Father and we call upon the name that is above every name. We call upon Jesus. This fills us with the peace of God and therefore we can stand firm in the Lord. Now we're coming to the fourth and last point on the instructions. Paul says we need to think of praise points and we need to act on them accordingly. Have a look at verse 8. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, Think about such things. So Paul is saying we really should contemplate and meditate on praise points. Literally the word think here means to count up, to weigh up, to consider the things Paul listed. But how often do we pray without any praise points? Because we only think of requests that we can bring before God. Or we don't have time for praise points because we are in a rush. And if, even if we have praise points, let me ask you this, um, what's the ratio in your prayers between your praise points and your requests? And when, when was the last time you just stood still in awe of God? Maybe you read your Bible and suddenly you have one of these light bulb moments where suddenly everything starts to make sense and it falls into place. You realize that the Bible, God's Word, is so much deeper than you first thought it is. Or maybe you're standing at a beautiful lookout, looking at God's creation, a mountain range, or the ocean. You know, these moments are moments that are praiseworthy. But how often do we stand still in these moments, and then take the next step and go into prayer, and praise God for it? Paul says that's exactly what we should do. We should think about these things and praise God. But Paul also says, 
The Christian doesn't stop with prayer. He says we need to be active. We need to live a gospel-shaped life. Have a look at verse 9. Paul reminds the Philippians and us, Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. It's like being on a bicycle. Yes, you can't stand firm on it, but you need to keep on pedaling, otherwise you will fall over. And I'm speaking of experience here. Yes, God's Spirit is working in us, but there are also fruits of righteousness. And they will show up. And there is that outworking of our salvation and fear and trembling from chapter 2. And these two things, God working in us and our responsibility to be active, they go together. They are two sides of one coin. So to stand firm in the Lord doesn't mean to be inactive. No, it means to follow Paul's example and to live an active life that is worthy of the gospel. So there you have it, four major points. First, resolve conflict and work in gospel partnership. Second, rejoice in the Lord always. Third, do all things with a prayerful attitude of thanksgiving. And fourth, be active, living a gospel-shaped life. And this brings us to our last bit for today. Let's briefly look at verses 10 to 23, where Paul uses himself as an example. And he shows us how he himself stands firm in the Lord. On the surface, verses 10 to 20 describe Paul's gratitude for the gift that he received from the Philippians through Epaphroditus. But underneath, it's actually not so much about the gift. Have a look at verse 17. Paul says, not that I desire your gifts. What I desire is that more be credited to your account. A better translation is, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit, the increase into your account. Paul isn't so much interested in the gift itself. What Paul seeks is the fruit of God. To see what God is doing through the Philippians. And notice he doesn't say in verse 10, I rejoice in you Philippians. Now have a look what he says in verse 10. He says, I rejoice in the Lord greatly. He rejoices in the Lord because he can see God's work in the Philippians. He rejoices in God because he brought them into gospel partnership. And they strive side by side for the gospel. So Paul's rejoicing is Christ-centered. And we have seen that already in his prayer in chapter 1. He said, I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers, for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. So you see, Paul already ticked three of the four instructions we looked at. He works in gospel partnership, he rejoices in the Lord, and he prays with thankfulness and a gratitude in his heart. But you know, Paul also rejoices in every circumstance. Even though he's writing from prison, being in chains, he says in verse 11, I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstance. Whether he's hungry or full, has much or nothing, Paul trusts in God's providence. But notice how he says, I have learned this. So there's a process involved in it. And it's something we can learn too, but it takes time. 
So why can he rejoice in every circumstance? Because he has the peace of God, which guards his heart and his mind. It's the same peace that Luther had. And we can have it too, through Jesus Christ. That's why Paul says in verse 13, I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Paul knows that he is weak, but he also knows that the God of the universe is with him. And that the Lord will return. In fact, Paul knows that even his suffering has a purpose. He says in chapter 1, Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. You see, Paul doesn't grumble about his situation because he knows that it's part of God's plan. And if you look at verse 23, you can see how God uses Paul's situation for the advancement of the gospel. He converted people even in Caesar's household. So Paul trusts in God so much that he can say, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. You see, his heart is on fire for God. Is yours at the moment, right now? Everything Paul does is gospel-shaped and Christ-centered. For him to live is Christ. So you see, Paul also takes that last instruction point. Paul is active, living out the gospel, even to the point of death. So to close, let me ask you this. Where do you stand with the Lord today? Maybe you're here for the first time today and everything that I said sounded a bit new or it sounded strange and complicated. If that's you, just please come and have a chat with Steve or with me after the service. But if you are a Christian for a while, let me ask you, do you stand firm in the Lord? Do you strive together for the gospel here at KPC with your brothers and sisters with one mind? And do you rejoice in the Lord always, even in your suffering? Do you know that peace of God that transcends all understanding, which guards your hearts and your minds? And is your life a life of prayer, salted with praise and glorifying God? And finally, are you active, living a life that is worthy of the gospel? I think all of us have at least one or more points on that list that we can work on. So let's pray that God will help us, because without Him we can do nothing. So let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we praise You for Your Word and we rejoice in the letter of Philippians that we went through the last couple of weeks. And Father, we pray that these points, and we know that these points are points that we need to work on, every one of us. And we just pray, Father, that you will keep working in us, keep working with your Holy Spirit and change us, molding us more into the likeness of Jesus. And we close this prayer from your word, from Psalm 100. Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Worship the Lord with greatness. Come before him with joyful songs. Know that the Lord is God. It is he who made us. And we are his, we are his people, the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his court with praise. Give thanks to him and praise his name, for the Lord is good. 
and his love endures forever. His faithfulness continues throughout all generations. Amen.